evening and welcome to Book Arts Press Lecture number 401. As I was saying to my class today, Monday seems a long time ago to those who have been in the descriptive bibliography class. Tonight's lecture is unusual in the Book Arts Press series, the long Book Arts Press series, because I've asked Brett Charbonneau to repeat his lecture, something I've only done on two or three occasions over the many years duration of this series. It seemed unusually appropriate for the descriptive bibliography class in particular last year, and good enough to repeat this year. It's a great pleasure to welcome Brett Charbonneau, who is printer in residence this week as well, back to this podium. Brett Charbonneau. Thank you. Coming from a small town like Williamsburg, Virginia, a couple of hours up the road, I was as a child forced to entertain myself during summer vacations. I was fortunate that I lived across the street from the College of William & Mary because it allowed me to seek refuge in the undergraduate library to which I was urgently drawn. The initial attraction may have been its exquisitely air-conditioned spaces and the simple fact that it was largely empty during the summertime, but I soon discovered that in the stacks one could commonly find and subsequently take home books which were older than the college itself, which was founded in 1693. I would frequently check out such ancient texts, which were rarely printed in English, take them home and leaf through them. Simply the fact that they were 300 years old and still in one piece when our newspaper didn't seem to last the week always seemed to really amaze me as a child. And when we had what to do when you want to grow up day at school, my choice was clear. While my friend Tommy expounded on the virtues of being a policeman and Susie explained the wonders of being an astronaut, she was very liberated for a seven-year-old, when it was my turn, I stood up and said, I want to be a bibliographer. (laughs) And I have to admit that after a pregnant pause, I was asked to explain what it was exactly that bibliographers did, which I did with great zeal. My teacher questioned this occupational decision. Now, Brett, Where are you going to find an institution which will fund this kind of position? This had not occurred to me. I will have to find some independently wealthy benefactor who has a keen interest in books, I suppose, I replied. My teacher looked at me, blinked, and said, okay. Now let's see what little Jimmy wants to do when he grows up. Now to be honest, I made this story up, but I wish it was true. To be born knowing one is a bibliographer must be a noble fact, but in fact, I think very few people plan to contribute to the field of bibliography. It's something people turn to out of necessity or stumble across because the related interests draw them in that direction. Many of you in the introduction to descriptive bibliography class wish to expand your present knowledge so you can apply it in a different field or were steered into bibliography as a method of problem solving. Bibliographical work can be a means to an end, but there's something to be said about bibliography for bibliography's sake. And during my bibliographical studies, I have come to realize a few indisputable rules or actually true facts about this field. Rule number one, bibliography is for geeks. Now let me explain to you what I mean by the word geek, and I really did search for a different word. I don't mean someone who by traditional definition bites the heads off chickens for entertainment, but someone who cannot stand questions that nobody has answers to. A colleague of mine worked at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science, and while visiting his facility one afternoon, a mutual acquaintance of ours known to the faculty as Mac, was working in his office. Mac holds a PhD in fluid dynamics as applied to underground water systems, which normally would qualify him as a geek alone, but this particular day, Mac's geek factor was at a peak. My colleague and I walked past Mac's office and peered in, only to find him staring at the floor. This was, in fact, not unusual for Mac. His gig is underground water systems, you'll remember. We figure he's trying to figure out what's going on under there. But what Mac was actually doing was observing a pair of scissors that had fallen off his desk and serendipitously landed point down in the cement floor. And there they stayed. Mac found this sufficiently interesting that he actually built a small shrine to this act of entropy (laughs) over the course of the next few months. Now, most people would sit and wonder what the chances of that happening, scissors jabbing themselves into cement hard enough to actually stay there, but not Mac. Mac really had to know what the chances were to the eighth decimal place and spent the next 90 minutes figuring out that exact statistic. 
Mac is a geek. Mac would make a great bibliographer. In a recent experience in my favorite bar, I noticed that the new menus, one of the sandwiches had changed its description to, quote, a side of chicken breast with beacon and cheese. I thought to myself, this sounds interesting. When asking the waitress what this was all about, she replied that it was simply a typo and that I must have received one of the older menus since newer ones had been printed with the correct description of, quote, bacon and cheese, end quote. Now, most people would have thought, well, the typo has been corrected, but geeks recognize the typo as a variance <laughs> and want to seek out the corrected copy for comparison, which is exactly what I did. <laughs> a geek will notice the lowercase g in the Westinghouse logo in the Alderman Library elevator, which you will see on your way to the reception following this lecture, as unquestionably the most malformed lowercase g that has ever been made in the English language. To test your own personal geek factor, take a gander on your way down. Geeks in general see the whole world in a different light. They walk through stores and see skincare products with the word exfoliate on them and think it has something to do with collational formats. <laughs> Or that the product in question must be used to remove that old book smell from your hands, an odor non-geeks tend to find rather offensive. <laughs> Rule number two, bibliography is not for wimps. Like anything worthwhile, more time is spent in looking than in finding. It is the ultimate puzzle, and you will always have missing pieces, but sometimes even the holes are rather pretty. Rule number three, like many things in life, bibliography can be very deceptive. Things may appear a certain way when, in fact, they are not that way at all. I'm reminded of one of my favorite World War II stories. In the early days of the war, the German Luftwaffe formed a unit whose sole intent was to construct entire airfields replete with airplanes, fuel trucks, ammo dumps, anti-aircraft guns, and assorted buildings, all from wood. These fake airfields were made to look exactly like the real McCoy from the air, and the idea was to set them up in one location until Allied intelligence noticed them, take the whole thing apart at night, and move it elsewhere. This would give the enemy the illusion that German air power was much more powerful and elusive. Here one day and poof, gone altogether. And so it was that after months of secret preparations on research on what these wooden props should be painted with and how they should be arranged as to be most believable, they finally felt they had this fake wooden aircraft thing down. To prove the effectiveness of this de devious ruse, members of the German high command were invited to come out and view the pieces in the field to see how devastatingly believable they actually were. As several field marshals and other high-ranking officers, officers inspected the fake planes and trucks and buildings, an air raid siren sounded. And in typical wartime fashion, they all scattered and headed for cover. On the horizon, a lone RAF bomber approached. The designers of fake airfields were ecstatic. What timing! The brass were here to see the first British airplane take the bait. The RAF Lancaster passed over the field. It circled the field once, and one more time, then the bomber came in very low over the field and dropped a single, large, wooden bomb. <laughs> like the German camouflage artists, in bibliography you can spend a lot of time thinking you know what's going on and pursuing a line of reasoning until that wooden bomb comes along. Then you need to be able to be abandon that flawed set of ideals and try something else. Rule number three, bibliography will not make you rich. Intense bibliographical study enables you to despise the wealth it prevents you from achieving. <laughs> Rule number four, bibliography will save the world. I am convinced that someday an alien race will approach our planet and want to blow our civilization to smithereens. As a point of honor, however, the aliens will spare us if we are capable of reasonable and rational thought. One of you in the descriptive bibliography class might be chosen out of all of mankind to prove society's worth. You will meet with the aliens and inform, who will inform you that Fredson Bowers was actually an alien life form planted among us <laughs> to see if our people could be taught some system of advanced thinking. <laughs> the alien will then hand you a mid-1830s Mexican octavo and half sheet and say... Please collate this according to the accepted rules of Brother Bowers. You have five minutes. Begin. <laughs> Rule number five. Bibliography can have a potential effect on history as yet undiscovered. 
There's a theory circulating now that the Chinese had time to build the Great Wall of China because the Mongols printed the barbarian handbook with unsigned signatures, <laughs> causing many miscollations, leading to the famous Genghis Khan quote, I don't care what the manual says, it's rape, pillage, then burn. <laughs> and of course, no discussion is complete without mentioning the Sinner's Bible printed in London in 1632, the ultimate textual variance in which the word not was missing from the Seventh Commandment. Thou shalt commit adultery. This is a variance whose significance you don't have to explain. My involvement in bibliography was purely by accident, and it was certainly not by design. I was only trying to find some answers to seemingly simple questions at the time. Let me explain. I was trained as an 18th century letterpress printer at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. And for those of you that haven't heard of Colonial Williamsburg, it's one of America's largest living history museums. If you have heard of Colonial Williamsburg and haven't visited us, you might want to check it out sometime. There are 88 original buildings set up on 300 acres, which make up a town which has been restored as much as possible to its 18th century appearance. Within this restored town, the foundation operates 12 trade shops, each one of which offers an apprenticeship for a specific trade. I went through a six-year apprenticeship in printing. That's right, you heard correctly, six years, 60 months, 1,810 days, but who's counting? I started my apprenticeship in 1988. I finished four years ago. And one of the most common questions I heard during the apprenticeship is what I wanted to do after my apprenticeship was finally complete. And my response was, you mean after I sober up? <laughs> I was taught by a master and two journeymen in a shop which used nothing but 18th century techniques and materials. We operated in a reconstructed building known to have housed a business which employed printers and binders, as well as the post office for the Commonwealth. All the while, throughout this apprenticeship, I worked in an area that was open to the public 365 days a year. Learning a skill in this type of environment is tantamount to learning how to parallel park, while 260,000 people a year observe and comment. <laughs> you set type. You correct type. You drop type on the floor after it's corrected. Is it supposed to look that way? No, I'm an apprentice and I made a mistake. It took me eight hours to set that page I just dropped. <laughs> it doesn't look like it took eight hours to make that. It's just a pile of metal. Thanks for coming to visit us. <laughs> Have a great day. I was fortunate that my shop had three wooden common style presses and that one of them was 220 years old. That original press has since retired, which makes me the last person to ever serve a full apprenticeship on that particular machine. Sometimes I drop by to see the old girl every once in a while, and she still looks good, but I keep getting older. I learned to set type in a collection of over five tons of type. We were never out of sorts. <laughs> hey, look, I don't write them, you know. <laughs> oh, actually, I did. I did some work in the shop's type foundry, and I worked with nothing but rag paper. Remember, no wood pulp paper existed until around the 1850s. And we reprinted only pre-1781 imprints. This is an important cutoff date to us because the capital moved to Richmond in 1780, and the printers quickly followed suit. The last book-length project I was involved in was the third edition of John Tennant's Every Man His Own Doctor or The Poor Plant Planter's Physician, which had a total run of 130,000 impressions all by hand. It was a 38-month job. The output, jo the output of the shop where, where I worked was sold to the public at large, used within the Foundation's Museum, and also sold to other museums and the rare book community. The apprenticeship I served did not involve printing alone, however. It involved a requisite knowledge of and some acceptable production capabilities in the trades related to printing. I had to learn some bookbinding, the sewing of books in sheets, and cursory finish work or tooling some paper making, which required the accurate formation and finishing of usable printing quality paper as well as some writing paper. And all apprentices had to have hands-on cursory experience with type foundering, which included punch cutting, matrix sinking, and justification, as well as casting type by hand. Also wood cutting and some ink making on the side. This is where I came from and what I did for nearly 12 years. Line 17 on my 1040 form read, Journeyman Printer. There were six of us in the United States with this job title in 1996. I have no idea where the other four worked. My knowledge of the trade was applied directly to my daily interpretation to a quarter million of the folks that were coming through my shop every year. 
And for many of these people, the only exposure to hand-pressed period printing and book production they were ever going to see was going to be at my shop. And it was for this reason I felt an obligation to get it right. It was this that caused the bibliographical bug to bite. Now, a part of getting this whole printing by hand thing right to the public is understanding how printing was accomplished during the period. And for the period in general, this is actually very easy. From 1500 to 1810, the presses, the type, the paper, the techniques of the trade simply did not change. Over 35 heavily illustrated publications were produced prior to 1800 on the printing trade, five of which were in English. The earliest is Joseph Moxon's Mechanic Exercises from 1683, which, if you have not read it, is wonderful to curl up with on winter evenings because Moxon is extremely fond of describing the color of dust likely to gather under each press in the evenings. One chapter is dedicated to the construction of ink balls, which are used to put ink on the type. This includes how many tacks it should take, what skin to use, what kind of wood the handle should be made out of, how to sit, what to wear, what kind of hat to wear, and what kind of tools to use. Moxon also tells you how to arrange the interior of the shop with the small letters underneath the windows and the big letters hidden underneath the staircases. He even comments on the position of the shop relative to the sun, the fact that the shop must face north or south to garner the full exposure of sunlight. In addition, we've also got 72 pre-1810 printing presses around the world which survive into the century that we can study firsthand. Understanding printing in the hand press period is easy. Understanding printing in the hand press period in Williamsburg, Virginia, turns out to be very difficult. Generally, research is done on specific trades in specific locations by studying archaeological artifacts and or written records which survive the business itself. Archaeological digs of the printing office site in Williamsburg yielded disappointingly small numbers of artifacts. A lot of printer's trash, which included parts of a washing trough, 80 ounces of type, more than any other site in the North American continent until the Annapolis dig in 1983, and pieces of a plate used to print a five-pound note currency piece in 1755. We also found some binding materials, all of which would fit on this table here with no problem at all. Other than that, there was no equipment, no other tools, supplies, nothing else relevant to mark that site as ever having been used by a printer. Along with archaeological relics, another useful resource for studying historic trades can be the archival records of the business themselves. In the case of Williamsburg printers, the archival evidence is a little bit more revealing than what came out of the ground, but the records are frustratingly brief. Day books, which list the day-to-day -day expenditures and income for two printers, both survive and now reside several hundred yards in that direction, serendipitously and luckily for me, here at the University of Virginia. Each covers a two-year period. They are not comprehensive, they do not list all expenditures for supplies or wages, and they do not list all income. They're both from the middle of the century, 1750 to 1752 and 1764 to 1766, and they only represent four out of a possible 72 business years. So our slice of the century's pie is horribly slim when it comes to written records. And yet the Williamsburg presses were very unique. No other town in Virginia would have printing in it for 44 years. So in many ways, Williamsburg imprints are, for the most part of the 18th century, also Virginia imprints. And the work the printers did is full of superlatives. America's first cookbook was printed in Williamsburg in 1742, The Complete Housewife or Accomplished Gentlewoman's Companion. The first book on sporting events, A Complete System of Fencing or Art of Defense in 1734. The first book printed on the continent on printing, Typographia, an Ode to Printing in 1730. And some of the very best how-to books money could buy. John Wiley's Treatise on the Propagation of Sheep, which instructs one how to raise sheep, shear sheep, dye wool, prepare lamb chops, and, I assume, the appendix has recipes for mint jelly, but we haven't found those yet. Also, William Burden's Gentleman's Pocket Farrier, showing how to choose a good horse. And, of course, the Poor Planner's Physician, which I mentioned earlier, one of the English-speaking world's very first medical books to mention the disease diabetes by name. The 12 printing businesses in Williamsburg produced over 500 different titles. Some on speculation, on the assumption that they would eventually sell, some paid for by the crown in the case of government books, but mostly exclusively by subscription in some printers' cases. Printers proposing the publication of a book, waiting for enough to be paid for, closing the subscription when enough had sold, and then printing the books. An extremely wise way to print books. They also did government work in a myriad of varieties, blank forms like commissions, appointments, court orders, almanacs every single year, a weekly newspaper for over 60 years, and blank public forms, 
Last year, through the good offices of the folks here at the Washington Papers Project, I discovered that George Washington had his lease forms printed in Williamsburg. A man who might have 40 or 50 tenants at a time, Washington was obviously not willing to hire a lawyer every time he lost a tenant. They simply filled out a new form. Pamphlets, political and religious, were also produced by the score, and more ephemera than one can shake a stick at, things like broadsides, lottery tickets, and book plates. What you have to keep in mind is that while all this is going on, staggeringly few records and even fewer artifacts bear testimony to this work. These have traditionally been considered the only way to document an early American activity, written primary documents and archaeological artifacts. Unfortunately, there is an inverse relationship between what was thought to survive for the trade of printing in Waynesburg and the level of interest my visiting public displayed on the trade itself. A lot of people were interested in what I did, partly because the printers of Waynesburg were so prolific and partly because the press is considered to be such a vital vehicle to the cause of the revolution. 260,000 people a year can't be wrong. And they ask surprisingly straightforward questions. Where did Waynesburg's 18th century printers get their paper? How many people worked in the shop at one time? How many newspapers did they publish a week? Where did they get their ink? Where did they get their type? How much type did they have at one time? Are you listening to me? Now you have to admit these are pretty legitimate questions. Even though I had over 30 years of in-house research to pull on the trade for Williamsburg itself, I still couldn't answer these types of simple questions with any modicum of certainty. And to make matters worse, after six years as an apprentice, of looking to secondary source material, I still could not find useful answers. It only takes a few years of looking thousands of people in the face saying, you know, that's a good question, before you start to wonder if the answers are out there, but no one had bothered to look for them. John Anderson of the group Yes once said that writing songs is, quote, like catching birds in the dark. You can hear them singing above your head. All you have to do is reach up and grab them. I thought this concept would apply really well to Virginia imprints as evidence. I started to think about archaeologically recovered artifacts as compared to actual surviving products of trades. Something found in the ground is photographed, x-rayed, sketched, published, and talked about to the nth degree, but the surviving products from the trades were being treated with a hostile indifference that defied belief. During my attempts to find answers to the nagging questions, I got real tired of reading justifications for not knowing the meat and potato details. I will now quote two nameless studies which prove my point. Quote, the work of studying each copy of an edition is tedious, end quote. Of course it's tedious. That's why it's called work. Quote, little information can be hoped to gain from the intense scrutiny of early American imprints, end quote. But by studying these for just three years with a staff of one, we've been able to triple the number of known Williamsburg imprints from 280 to 900. Now, to be truthful, this approach of studying surviving products of the trades was probably not seriously considered before because so few products survive from the other trades in 18th century Williamsburg. There are, you might remember, 12 trade shops. The cabinet makers have 72 pieces of furniture they can document to Williamsburg before 1780. The foundry has 36. The gunsmith has three. There are no known Williamsburg artifacts for the shoemaker, harness maker, milliner, silversmith, Cooper, wheelwright, blacksmith, carpenter, or wig maker. None. From the printing office, there are over 12,000 surviving products. More than all the others in the city combined times 100. It seemed to me that we had a mountain of evidence waiting to be tapped into, so I came up with the particularly obvious idea of looking at the documents cohesively as evidence and two, for the first time, include ephemera that made up most of the work these printers did. What I wanted to do was simple, milk each copy of each imprint for all it was worth. I wanted to look at all imprints and study every possible aspect of them and use all the collected information to create a big picture which would help us reconstruct approximate staff sizes, shop inventories, possible contacts to continental suppliers, and anything else that would deepen our knowledge of these tradesmen. My colleagues in constabulary were supportive but wary. Don't reinvent the wheel, said one. Surely someone else has done this sort of work. You just need to find the report or dissertation and all will be revealed. I like that one the best. Now, don't get me wrong. There was previously scholarly work done on printing in Williamsburg, most of it excellent, but all of it on books. They had been enumerated, contemplated, investigated in various depths, 
Susan Berg, then one of Colonial Williamsburg's librarians, now director of the Rockefeller Library, had enumerated all of Williamsburg's imprints, which were over four pages in length. This was a wise limitation. She wanted a finishable project. But the curious apprentice at the time kept answering unanswerable questions like, how many pages are in each book? Or if I ever do get a rich benefactor who will send me to the Library of Congress, how many books will I see? These were questions that Susan's three by five cards were not designed to answer. She was all about enumerating, not describing. Williamsburg's books had also been uh, contemplated by Lawrence Roth and John Hemphill and thoroughly investigated by Wilman Spawn for the decorative aspects of the bindings. Mr. Spawn is thoroughly distracted with these decorative aspects alone without getting into the binding structure, typefaces, and watermarks. But little of his work addressed my situation at the level of detail I felt I needed, and none of it included ephemera. Again, the bulk of these printers' work. Just book-length projects have been considered. Mark Twain once said, all you need in this life is ignorance and confidence, and then success is sure. And being rather confident in my ignorance, I felt I had a good shot. I had many questions, no answers, and the only thing I could do was play detective with several hundred, if not thousands, of books and newspapers and God knows what else, which were all over the United States, and no clue on how to play detective. And in my case, necessity was the mother of intervention. This is where all of you have a serious advantage over me. I had never heard of the field of bibliography, let alone what bibliographers did. I thought I was alone in the world, plagued by some insatiable desire, a geek without a cause, as it were. So in an attempt to find a cause, I began to write letters, lots and lots of letters. I took the enumerative list carefully prepared by Susan Berg and wrote every institution that held a Williamsburg imprint. I sent them a list of characteristics I wanted to record on some of the surviving imprints for comment, and most people did respond. About a third of the respondents applauded my efforts and offered helpful suggestions. Another third thought my list, of which I sent for comment, was actually a questionnaire for them to fill out and they told me as politely as possible to drop dead. Another third thought I was certifiably insane to take on a project with such ambitious proportions and refused to comment further on my work until I told them, number one, how old I was, I guess to make sure I didn't die in the middle of the project, and two, where my source of funding was going to come from, a recurring question. Some, I think, assumed I was already a bibliographer looking for a place to happen, and referred me to bibliographical articles and periodicals like the library and the papers of the Bibliographical Society of America. Most of these I found very helpful, but at the time I thought these articles were flukes. Not knowing what bibliography was all about, I didn't even think the subject of these articles, the history of the book and descriptive bibliography in general, was the focus of the periodicals. I thought the authors were renegade librarians thinking out loud. But the authors were using books as evidence. Granted, these were almost exclusively European books, but still, they were doing to their books what I wanted to do to mine. One of Murphy's inexorable laws states that to steal ideas from one person is plagiarism. To steal from many is research. So I decided to emulate these authors' techniques. I reworked my list of things to look for in an imprint and forwarded this second version to those librarians who responded positively the first time around. And then it happened. One letter came in and said, perhaps you should take a look at Philip Gaskell's work on bibliography. Three or four other letters mentioned this guy named Bowers. Gratefully, I picked Gaskell first because Bowers... (laughs) Bowers exhibited way too high a geek factor for me to deal with as a novice. I looked at principles of bibliographical description and said, whoa, this looks like math. Better save this for later. Gaskell, on the other hand, was clearly speaking my language. The first few chapters summed up my apprenticeship. And for the first time in my life, it was all correct. No glaring errors on important details. Rollers used in the 16th century. This guy knew what he was talking about, and I clearly had to find out more about this bibliography thing. This was in the winter of 1991. And just as I was writing back to the people who suggested Gaskell thanking them for this wonderful experience, someone else wrote and suggested I contact this guy Bellinger in New York City. New York City? Now, Professor Bellinger, director of the Book Arts Press and Rare Book School, was one of the first academic people I had ever written to, so I made sure to run spell check twice on the letter before sending it. He made some very insightful suggestions and informed me that he would actually be in Williamsburg the following summer for a convention of the American Typecasting Fellowship, Type Geeks, And could we sit down and talk then? 
well, this was big stuff, my first bibliographical powwow, even though I didn't know it then. (laughs) We met for lunch, Dr. Bellinger in suit and tie, eating peanut soup, a new experience for him. And me, because I was not a type geek and had to sneak into the meeting in my shabby apprentice clothes with an exceptionally inky apron, talking about books as evidence with somebody else besides myself, a new experience for me. And not unlike the ugly duckling, I discovered that I was a bibliographer and that there were others in the world like me (laughs) who also looked at books for hours and hours and never read them. (laughs) I was shocked and thrilled to discover that there was a veritable cornucopia of periodicals and larger works that could help me with my studies and that there were fellowships actually available to help me fund these types of studies. That it was quite possibly true that no one had ever undertaken a study like the one I proposed. And that if I pursued this idea, I could possibly become the world's leading scholar in colonial Virginia imprints, which may not sound like that much of a distinction, but when you live in Williamsburg, it is a great way to pick up chicks. I love the way you say tranche. That since this meeting, I've been lucky enough to start something called the Williamsburg Imprints Program, which is a child of the North American Imprints Program. I've been able to secure enough fellowship money to support a total of 19 months of research on this program and to enjoy the camaraderie and encouragement of scholars who lead their field on an international scale. And let me tell you right now, before I go any further, I am not a scholar. Number one, I do not write well. I don't split infinitives, I hack them in half. (laughs) Number two, I do not even have an undergraduate degree. I abandoned William & Mary in my junior year to become an apprentice. Number three, I am not widely published. And it says in my notes here, see number one, I do not write well. (laughs) And yet everyone, with extremely rare exceptions who I've come in contact with in this field, has been gracious to a fault, and many times at great personal expense. Every single time I've met with one of these scholars, they've gone out of their way to aid and abet my studies. Being unbelievably tolerant of my ignorance, naivete, and my inexperience in a world where I am an outsider, which is academia. I've tried their very best to make sure that I was encouraged. And at every bad turn or frustration, or they just generally inspired me to keep toiling at a job which they themselves made sure was not thankless. I am truly fortunate that they allow me to consider them colleagues. And I'll give you a few examples. I have on several occasions traveled to distant cities with these colleagues seeking aid in specific areas of my work with the Williamsburg imprints. Not only have these scholars unfailingly greeted me with open arms and cheerful salutations, not only have they shared their research and findings, they've literally spent decades collecting. And I don't mean let them glance at their notes. They gave me copies of unpublished work. Not only have they endeavored to keep in touch with me, offered assistance of any kind by calling, writing, emailing, and personally visiting, but they have frequently invited me into their homes for days at a time, taking time off from their own work to take me to collections to show me the only extent copies of things which exemplify the sort of thing I should be looking for or staying away from, and treated me to new life experiences ranging from live stadium baseball games, beer with alcohol content that defies belief, and explanations of how many shillings are in a guinea and why. I have never heard of another field where this type of camaraderie exists. One of the guys I grew up with is now a physicist. He does not mention getting email from Stephen Hawking about this pesky problem with cold fusion. (laughs) Another is a computer geek, but Bill Gates does not drop him a note every once in a while to ask how Windows 95 is doing. Now granted, bibliography is a small pond and maybe the big fish feel the need to stay together to survive, but there is no rule that says they have to be tolerant of the new kid of the block, let alone share the fruits of their research. Regardless, the field of bibliography is ripe with opportunities. You can tell the pioneers from the arrows in their backs. And out here on the frontier, it's easy to be a squatter, and the neighbors are right friendly too. So friendly, in fact, let me show you some of the things we've managed to cook up together and how this worked has helped me come up with some of the real answers to those pesky questions. Paper is a real problem. There's no printing without paper. 
I read a quote from the Virginia Gazette in 1774. Our customers, it is hoped, will pardon the smallness of this paper, which is the largest we can procure, until the supply we daily expect comes in hand. This is the kind of vague reference to paper supply that drove me crazy during the early part of my work. Where did the paper come from? Did the supply dwindle during the revolution? Did they use low-quality paper for newspapers, like today? The only reference to paper supply for all 12 Williamsburg printers was found in a Virginia Gazette from 1775. Quote, as the printers are anxious to supply all demands against them and to purchase a stock of printing paper, which at this time, 1775, is very scarce and cannot be had without cash besides an infinite amount of trouble and expense importing it from Pennsylvania, they request that those good customers that are in arrears for this gazette, books, stationery, etc., should discharge the same as soon as possible. Good, but not wholly enlightening. Well, I needed a way to look directly at 18th century paper itself and try and glean as much information as possible. Watermarks are at least a partial solution to the problem. A watermark is created in a really strange fashion, which I will now explain. The pulp for hand-pressed paper is made by having water-powered machinery beat preferably white rags into a literal pulp. Paper is formed by dipping a mold, which is mostly a wire screen, into the pulp. The screen strains out the, a very light layer of pulp, and this becomes a sheet of paper. A watermark is formed when additional wire is bent into a very specific shape and sewn onto the screen. The wire makes the paper thinner during the straining, and the light shows the area is much easier, making the watermark appear as a lighter design in the paper, which is only visible when it's held to the light. A watermark has the potential to tell you where the paper was made, its overall quality, and therefore how much it cost originally, approximately, and what size the original sheet was before it was folded into a book. This can indicate how wasteful printers were in the margins and give you an idea of how big the press was that was used to print it. In short, many of the things my visitors were constantly pestering about when I was in the printing office, something that has since become a personal fascination. The best way to work for, with watermarks is to search for them in imprints you are interested in and somehow manage to record them. And once you have an image of the watermark in question, you can hopefully find the watermark in a watermark catalog, which will hopefully have more specific information about the mill that produced the paper, which produced the watermark, or perhaps one of your colleagues has seen the watermark before and they can share their research with you. If you take a look at your handouts, you'll see some examples. Figures 1 and 2 are typical watermarks found in Virginia. Watermarks are subtle and working with them can be difficult. William Parks, our first printer in Virginia, the Commonwealth being without a printer for the first 123 years of its existence, had a mill funded outside of Williamsburg, which was paid for mostly by Benjamin Franklin. This was set up in 1744 and disappears in 1751. We don't know what happens to it. Figure 1 shows the mark as it appears in the paper. Figure 2 shows the mark as it is traced on a light table. One of my predecessors got interested in watermarks and contacted the Wisconsin Historical Society, which is known to hold several Virginia imprints, and asked a friendly librarian to page one of the books known to have Williamsburg paper, hold the leaf up to the light, and describe what she saw. She said, quote, I see two men in pajamas holding a basket of fish. <laughs> And one of them looks like Charlie Brown. <laughs> it is clear that oral description does not work with watermarks. And in no watermark catalog I have ever seen is there a listing for pajamas. <laughs> a way to accurately record watermarks is essential. How to record watermarks? I really use two methods. One is called the Dialox method, which uses photographic paper. One simply puts a sheet of this dialect underneath the sheet of paper that has the watermark in it and simply exposes it with regular fluorescent light. You can then take the dialects out, which, by the way, is pH neutral, and expose it to ultraviolet light, which will give you a blue and white image of the watermark. Figure 1 is a photocopied dialect image. Figure 5 is a raw dialect image, and it emerges from the darkness because that's exactly what it's doing when it's exposed by fluorescent light. Number one has been photographically treated with a red filter and makes it look a lot sharper. Now, some papers simply won't dialux well for, for reasons I do not understand or I'm not geek enough to figure out. They just don't pass light. And for these instances, you have to come up with an alternative method. Figures three and four are rubbings made by actually slapping a 
Slapping is really too violent a word. Slipping a piece of plate glass with really smooth edges on it so book curators don't crucify you into the book and taking a piece of tracing paper and a real broad-leaded artist pencil and carefully rubbing it. This will actually give you this image. Figure three actually looks more like two guys in pajamas holding a basket of fish. Figure four is one of the few watermarks I've ever seen that actually had a date in it. It's real difficult to make out, but in the lower right-hand corner, you see 1742. This does not mean the paper was made in 1742, but maybe the watermark was. And that can be helpful sometimes. In addition to procuring the watermarks themselves, also recording the density of the wire screen, which you can see on these images, is important, too. A denser screen indicates higher quality and more expensive paper. A coarser screen indicates really cheap stuff. That's really helpful because the printers in Williamsburg treated their newspapers as the flagship of their enterprise. They were always high quality. I've seen about 500 so far, and they all seem to be on almost stationary quality paper. We line our birdcages with newspapers. Back then, it was their calling card. Now on to type. Type is the most expensive part of the printing office. The number of fonts appearing in an imprint can tell you how big a shop's inventory was approximately. It can tell you how successful a particular printer was, which can tell you what else the printer is capable of. One of our printers in Williamsburg, who was loyal to the king during the Revolutionary War, had as many as 12 fonts in his shop at one time. The printer working for the Americans had as many as five, but we know that he was in previous partnership with a well-set-up printer. Did their partnership dissolve because of political disagreements which forced the type into either shop and forced the rebel printer to operate in ragtag operations? Nobody knows. Identifying where a printer purchases type may lead you to other information, however. The printer you are interested in may not have any written survival archival records, but his supplier's records may survive in England, and that may lead you to all sorts of interesting things. Figures 6 and 7... Four years ago, if you'd asked me where Williamsburg printers got their type, I would have said, well, they bought type from William Caslin and some Dutch guys we've never been able to answer, which is a remarkably lame answer. I now know that they use type from several foundries, some simultaneously. Now, one of the mylars you have in your packet is labeled English Roman number one. We're going to look at Jefferson's summary view of the rights of British America, printed by a woman by the way, who was working for the Crown at the same time she was printing revolutionary pamphlets. Mama said she had a spinal problem. She had one. Now I'm going to take this opportunity to acknowledge that this idea of photographing bibliographical stuff onto Mylers for comparison, I stole from Richard Noble, who was in residence this week. He used it as a cheap way to do optical collation, which we'll do a little bit later. The example in front of you shows how you can use Mylars as overlays. You take a known type specimen, in this case a mylar sheet from the specimen sheet issued by Alexander Wilson, and you compare it to an unknown example you'll find in the field to see if you get a match. If you compare the uppercase letters R, M, L, and N, come on, faster, you get a real good idea of how the system works. You can look at that M and there's no doubt about it. That's the same uppercase M. The broadside below, figure 7, interestingly enough, describes the events of Lexington and Concord in Virginia for the first time. News that hit Virginia in nine days. We found out about the Declaration of Independence in 21 days. If you start to compare the uppercase R in Williamsburg or the G, you can see they relate pretty well, but if you look at them side by side, that's not the same letter at all. The R in the broadside is much squatter, much fatter, the G in the broadside doesn't have nearly the same shape or hooked serif on it. And yet the italic appears to be a dead ringer. Look at the lowercase f. And I must tell you that there's only one lowercase f in the English ita italic quote, which is furor in the quoscutandum. Pardon my Latin, which is really terrible. The lowercase g, unquestionably the most distinctive letter in the English specimen sheet, and I would like to thank God publicly right now for the word vigile, the only word in the coscu tendum abotera quote that has a G in it. If vigile, in, which is in the fifth line, wasn't there, I wouldn't be able to do a lot of this comparison smaller type sizes because so the lowercase italic G is extremely distinctive. The summary view uses types from Alexander Wilson. The broadside types were cast by John Bain, both Scots. Alexander Wilson worked in Glasgow, John Bain in Edinburgh. 
The mylar is from a specimen sheet by, again, Alexander Wilson. The italic may appear to be the same, probably due to the fact that Wilson and Bain were partners in Scotland before going their separate ways. Did Bain take some of the italic with him when the partnership died? Did he make copies of the punches? Interesting stuff. Two different printers, two different eras, two separate occasions. Identifying these sources of types of mylar overlays has made for some very useful discoveries. Six different foundries provided Williamsburg with its type from four different cities, London, Glasgow, Edinburgh, and Amsterdam. We previously believed and told hundreds of thousands of people that Williamsburg's printers were limited to using type from only one founder at a time, that there were no standards between type founders. There was no way to mix and match. Once you started using type from one founder, you were pretty much locked into that person's format. We used to say it was like buying software for the IBM, which would only run on the IBM, and then you bought Apple software, which only ran on the Apple, and then they made an Apple that ran IBM software, and that went out the window. In figure eight, you can see type from three very different, very distinct letter forms all on one page. A violation of the rule. Like Don McKenzie said, one cannot assume that all swans are white just because all one has seen is white swans. One black swan, swan ruins your theory and may dump your grant. The first, seventh, eleventh, and sixteenth lines were likely produced from a different founder than were lines two, five, nine, and thirteen because the letter forms are so radically different. Look at the uppercase C in the complete mariner. Compared to the C in trigonometrically, they're totally different letter forms. The type in lines 3 and 15, the really huge stuff in treatise and sphere, are actually made by the Dutch founder Johannes Rolu, a fact discovered by using mylar overlays to compare unknown types to known specimens until there was a match. Further study into this oddity revealed that John James, an English type founder, heavily collected Dutch punches and matrices. James is known to have purchased punches and matrices by the thousands. On a single trip to Holland, he purchased 3,500 matrices and punches. And when John James died in 1773, all the types which you see on the sheet were present in his estate. Did my printers buy their types from him? We don't know. John James's records were destroyed during the Blitz in London. Figures 9 and 10 need to be looked at simultaneously. Examine both seemingly identical pages by eye. This comparison of different copies is called optical collating. And what you're looking for is a difference in supposedly identical copies. Right now you're doing it manually and you're doing it the way I like to refer to as the Wimbledon method, which involves a lot of going back and forth to see. If you're sharp, you'll notice that line four in the first paragraph ends differently and line five begins differently. You'll also notice, of course, that the spelling of beginning in the first line of the second paragraph is different. And these are the only variances one is likely to notice using the Wimbledon method. The paragraph schemes are almost identical. The overall layout is almost identical. These particular specimens even have similar foxing patterns. Now take a look at the mylar marked figure number nine and overlay it on top of the Xerox. And this is going to take a little practice. This will give you an idea while you're getting it right what a double strike looks like when a typist hits this key twice on the same piece of paper. It, it's hard to do on a flat, unless you have a flat surface. But keep working with it until you get it right and you'll see that it's a direct line overlay. It's a, it's a direct identical image. Now overlay mylar number nine on figure 10. Anyone who's likely to get nauseous, don't try this. <laughs> try lining up the headlines first. When you get things lined up, the first thing you're going to notice, maybe, is that the marginal note, 1693, is much lower. Look at the comparison of both lines four. They don't line up at all, and yet the words line up. Try comparing word by word, ignoring the spacing. It's clearly the same type, just different spacing between the words. What does this mean? What we're looking at here is different setting of, of the same page. For some reason, the printer saw fit to reset this page, print some copies, and then reset it and reprint it again. This could mean he had some catastrophic loss of printed sheets in the middle of his run. During the printing, a warehouse perhaps burned, which forced him to reprint a lot of the pages. 
If one collates this entire book, William Stith's The History of the First Discovery and Settlement of Virginia, done in 1747, you'll find the introduction and appendices is the same in most copies. A catastrophic loss which forced a reprint would make sense in the middle of the project because the introduction and appendices were probably printed after the middle sections were. Perhaps they did a subscription publication of this book which met with unexpected high demand after the subscription was closed. We can't say with any certainty why these center sections, dozens of them, were reset. There's clearly more to the story. As an aside, I called one of my colleagues saying, I've examined three of these now. I've got a pattern. And my answer was, Brett, three is a coincidence. <laughs> Twenty is a pattern. So the wooden bomb kind of came back to visit me. There are no Virginia Gazettes for 1746 or 1747, so no subscription notice is known, and there are no news of delayed deliveries of copies, which is very unfortunate. And yet, Virginia Gazettes are turning up all the time. So we might find out exactly what happened yet, either through further study of the evidence or through period accounts. Hopefully you can see now why I'm willing to become the poster child for bibliography. The stuff works. The printed manner itself can be used as evidence and you can study it all the time. With the right techniques, it can tell you volumes. <laughs> Tough crowd. <laughs> In situations where little else survives, this may be all you have to go by. And this is why I heartily encourage any and all of you to pick an area of study and revel in it. Like I said, there are plenty of areas to choose from. I remember telling my mom when I first got into bibliography that this was a field that was 99% frontier. And she said, well, if that's true, your potential for mistakes is rather limited. Who'd know the difference? <laughs> and I think she was right. Any contribution is useful and should be encouraged, even if it turns out to be wrong. It gives some, some, something for somebody else to shoot at. It gets something on the subject out there. And as Murphy says, no one is listening until you make a mistake. To know what the truth is, one needs to know what the truth is not. In closing, I hope you can see that bibliography can be an interesting and fun field to be involved in. There's clearly a lot to be learned from small scraps of paper now hundreds of years old. Some of you tonight might want to get involved in the study of books as objects. And by all means, stake a claim on the grand frontier. And if you do, as a parting wish, I hope that those of you that choose to make a contribution to the field will, as Thomas More said, always walk through smiling rows of chubby duodecimos. <laughs> Thank you.